this is Rachel Lynn, and you are listening to Upstage Left. In today's episode, I speak with Catherine Curtin, who you've definitely seen on the big or small screen. She plays Wanda Bell in Orange is the New Black, Dustin's mom on Stranger Things, and has had major recurring parts on HBO's Insecure and Homeland, as well as many, many other TV shows and films. I love talking to Kathy because not only is she a native New Yorker, she's also one of those quintessential New York actors who once you see in one thing, you start seeing her pop up everywhere. She made her Broadway debut in 1990, and since then she's had such an incredible career. I was so excited to find out more about how she went about building that career, and what's important for her these days. Uh, She has a movie coming out in Tribeca in June called Werewolves Within, so make sure to keep an eye out for that. Here is Kathy Curtin. Um, I'm good. I'm tired. I'm really tired because I am a little bit busy. But, you know, I, I prefer that to not that. And, you know, I think that the hardest thing with being, um, you know, I'm a working mom, you know, so sometimes I feel like, you know, I got home last night and my son wanted me to sit down and watch a movie with him. Mm. And I kept getting up to put some food on my plate and get some dinner. And he was like, sit down. I want to watch a movie with you. And I'm like, yeah, I can't just get down, just get in, sit down, just get in, sit down. And then, you know, I get so tired and um, I just, then I went and I got the bag of popcorn and then that was, it was all over. You know, <laughs> like once I, once I began that bag, you know, that was it. That was really it. How old is your son? He's 15 and he's my, he's my love muffin. He's my, he's my, he's like incredible. You know, if I, if he heard, I said that he'd be horrified because I embarrass him all the time, apparently. And he tells me I'm not allowed to call him, you know, I'm not mommy. I'm mom. (laughs) Stop telling me to drink apple juice. Stop telling me, did I do this? Did I do that? So he's at that, that age where he really, I guess, values him doing his thing. And it's hard, you know, as a mom, because, you know, you start to you're really losing your, your little child and, and you're gaining this person, this, this complete individual that, you know, has all the thoughts and feelings and, and psyche of an adult that you would meet on the street. And you're really in a way meeting that person for the first time because they're coming to the world for the first time. And just because they're your child or your son does not mean that you really can predict who they are, know who they are, or yeah. understand who they are. I mean, I'm 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 really learning. So that's amazing. I think that's the hardest thing for me is to feel that I'm I'm a, I'm a good mom. That's the really the hardest job. I I I I think you know the rest I'm vaguely okay at, but the mom <laughs> thing is really <laughs> this is just a really challenge. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Also, I mean, he's a kid in New York, which I know yeah. you were, and I also yeah. grew up in New York as a teenager. Yay. So, yeah, where uh, where in New York are you from? Well, I've lived in practically uh, every neighborhood in the city now, except for the Upper West Side. I've never gone to the suburbs up there, um, <laughs> but um, I've lived, you know, everywhere. I've lived Upper East, uh, Lower East Side. I've lived in Brooklyn. Um, 
Chelsea. I'm now in the West Village. I love the West Village. I'll probably stay here, I think, for a while. I could have gotten a bigger apartment in Chelsea, but I chose the West Village because for a native New Yorker, the West Village, I think only another New Yorker might understand this. It just holds this like mythic glory, you know, like I feel mm-hmm. like I've, 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 I've really achieved, I mean, I have a very small apartment, but I feel <laughs> that I've achieved something because I'm in the West Village. Like people ask me, where do you live? And I'm like, ah, I live in the West Village. Yeah. Yeah. You're the ultimate like cool yeah. woman. You're I, like Patty right? Smith. Patty Smith. I know. At her height. I know. That's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. So I had to change, you know, I have my, my kitchen is the size of a closet. Like it's, it's not actually, there are a lot bigger closets than my kitchen. My kitchen is smaller than a closet. It's like, it's like my kitchen is the size of a sausage roll, you know, (laughs) but um, what can I do? You know, I'm in the West village. It's cool. And, and I'm sure your son loves it. He's like the cool kid. You know, it is cool. And I do think kids that grow up in New York are kind of cool because he went to school here, PS3 and 75 Morton, and uh, he has an entire neighborhood full of West Village kids, and they they wander around together, and kids in New York, you know, they they do stuff, and they don't have to drive cars, and they don't, they don't, like, hang out under the bridge in the suburb town. They, like, wander over to you know, the intrepid or they wander over to the Chelsea market or they wander, you know, they, he, he's gone up to the Met museum with his friends. He's gone to the Whitney with his friends, you know, they'll, they'll wander down to wall street. And so I, I think it's, it's, it's fun. And I think it's stimulating. I think there's a lot that you gain out of being a teenager in New York city. And I, I loved being one here, but, you know, I was one at a time when, you know, I mean, I was kind of a bad girl, but you know, I mean, I was out, mama was out, you know, I took, I mean, I was, you know, limelight and I mean, how did you go to high school? I went to sacred heart. I went to convent of the sacred heart Catholic school girl. Yeah. Well, the nuns, the nuns were always like, we thought you were a nice girl. I was like, I thought so too, but ah, verdicts out. They didn't know what to do with me. But it's on the Upper West Side, isn't it? Upper East Side. Upper, Upper East, East Side. Side. It's in an old mansion. It's beautiful. You know, some, I don't know, before taxes, one of the barons got this mansion, made, made this mansion, built this mansion. And it's a beautiful building to have a school in. You know, I think New York needs more schools. And I think all of the mansions that are in New York should be turned into schools, any that are mm-hmm. left. And I also really think it's good for kids to go to school in a place that is visually stimulating or harmonious. And some of the public schools in New York, you know, that we have gone to, they really need a paint job, you know, and you feel badly when you go in, you're like, oh my God, could I get in here with some other moms and we paint this hallway, you know? And, and, and I think for kids, they, I think children deserve to go to a school that not only where they're caring about their education, but where, you know, it's, it's, it's clean and warm and comfortable. And that is a struggle for the public school system in New York city. And I was a teaching artist and I was a substitute teacher. And I can tell you for a fact that some of the schools I taught in were gorgeous. And some of the schools I taught in, you know, were really struggling to, to look okay. You know, they look okay, but 
I, I think children have a right to go to a school, you know, where not everything is painted like the phone book, you know, like some kind yeah. of weird yellow that must have been on sale. yeah 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 for sure for sure yeah I think my public high school or my public my public elementary school is definitely that like yeah like the kind of yellow green that you see on like toxic waste cans yes oh my gosh like why do they pick that color like why why do they pick that color citywide standard color I think actually all schools use that color or like the bright red like the yes fire engine red for the stairwells and stuff yeah or this weird blue this like horrid blue that is like mental institutions mental institution blue (laughs) mental institution blue or mental institution green it's one of those yeah where did where did you go to school I went to Stuyvesant High School. Oh, oh, smart, 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 smart. But my junior high school is in Diker Heights, which is deep Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a Brooklyn kid. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Did you like Stuyvesant? Oh, it was very, I liked, I was also kind of a bad kid. So I think I got there and it was very high pressure. And I was like, I'm not going to be the smartest kid here. So I might as well just be the wildest I don't know like not wildest necessarily but you know advance in different ways than educationally which was yeah well I think it's hard like I had a friend of mine who went to Stuyvesant and she said you know when she got there she realized she was never going to be Mozart and Mozart was actually going to school with her and she's like I'm never going to compete with this person there's no way this is like this is an, an unnatural genius this is beyond beyond human ordinary ability. This is something other. And, and that's who I'm going to school with. And I'm sort of just bright, you know, she was just really smart. And she's like, in a way it was hard for me because I felt like no matter how hard I worked, there was no way I was going to get there, you know? And so I feel like maybe for her, she might've been better served being in the top of her class in a school that wasn't as high charge she could have been like the number one in another Mm. school and I it might have been better for her confidence you know and her her ambition I think I feel that way I identify with that for sure yeah yeah but I mean it's also really cool to have gone to Stuyvesant I mean that's a real you know feather in your cap impossible to get into you know my son took that exam and 35,000 kids took the exam the year he took it for Stuyvesant 35,000. So, and what do they accept? Like, I don't know, a couple of thousand or something. Who knows, right? 800 a class. 800 a class. So Mm -hmm. 35,000 applied and they take 800. I mean, that's just like crazy tunes, you know? So the fact that you got in is, is, is really cool. Really, really cool. Oh, thanks, Kathy. That's so sweet. How did you get into acting? I mean, I, Okay, I read that you. Uh, I read that your first show was in 1990. Was this it? Six oh yeah, six degrees. degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six degrees. Was that 1990? Oh. That was 1990. Um, Broadway yeah. debut at 20. Yeah. How did? No, that I was. Uh, let's not talk about how old I was. I was. Okay. I, I was old enough, but um, I was legal. But I. It was my first time, you know, doing theater at that level. And I started out as an understudy and then I took over a bit and then I left for a little bit and to do my like little off, off Broadway thing. <laughs> Cause that's always, so it's more, more interesting to me. 
and some experimental downtown political theater. I was like, I can't do Broadway all the time. I can't, I gotta go. Like friends of mine are doing political theater in the village and I gotta go. And I'm going to make like two, two cents. I got to make two cents, you know, but I, but that was the thing too. At that time, you know, my apartment cost $650 a month mm-hmm. and it was a nice little apartment and you could afford to be young and, you know, sort of like I'm leaving the cushy paycheck to go explore. You could afford to do that as a young person because the cost of college was less at that time. So you didn't come out with these horrendous $100,000 debt situation that kids have today, which is so wrong. Yeah. And then when you're covering $650 a month and you live in New York City, even back then, you could wait tables a dozen times and you'd cover your rent, right? So it wasn't even like you had to exhaust yourself. New York City, you could always pick up 100 bucks entertaining at a kid's birthday party or whatever. New York has a ton of survival jobs. It's like the city of survival jobs for young people. And I think that's still true. The problem is, is that those jobs don't pay necessarily that much more, but you can't live in New York city. You know, now like, you know, my niece is sharing an apartment. I don't know. One of her apartments that she shared with like five or six people. And it was so expensive just for those kids to each cover their own. It was like what you would pay as an adult, mm-hmm. you know, and these kids yeah. are just out of school. I mean, not that they're not adults, but they shouldn't be paying $2,000 a month. Yeah. You know, how are you supposed to risk? How are you supposed to be able to do things? And so that's, that for me was a big factor in why I was able to be an artist and why I felt okay about being an artist was because New York was really easy to live in and it was fun and it was charming and everybody was an artist. Everybody was doing their thing. Everybody was, you know, living in some little apartment somewhere and meeting up and making something, creating something. And it was, it was in that sense, a different city. And I I mean, I, I did a lot of work at Ensemble Studio Theater, which I love. And it's probably the reason that I'm still in this industry because I'm a member there, but they really just started handing me roles when I was a kid. Really? And yeah. They were like, do you want to play the angry bird? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the bird red. And they were like, yeah, the bird could be red. And I'm like, definitely. What time should I be there? And, you know, so and literally, I mean, I spent years doing everybody's everything at EST in all of the Young Blood stuff, which is a great company that's in that. Uh, it's a writer's company that is a part of EST. Mm. And, you know, they're really probably why I'm an actor to this day, because, you know, actors need to work. And I was constantly, every week I was doing something for them. Every, like, I don't know what I was doing. Uh, they have a million different things that they do. But I was constantly just, you know, they would ask me to show up and I'd show up. And, you know, I never really cared if I was doing a lead or a supporting or, you know, I, di- I didn't care. I was just like, these are my people. This is my community. This is this is my home. Uh, I'm here. And if I have a good week, maybe I can bring a treat to rehearsal or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you start out there with Kurt or after Billy? Yeah, Jones? with Kurt. With Kurt. 
I thought Youngblood didn't start until RJ got there. Is that right? Or RJ and Graham. It yeah. did, but before Kurt, before before Youngblood, I had a I had a decent time at EST. I did. They still did a lot. You know, they did Oktoberfest a lot more, a lot more. They did member initiated projects, which were awesome, and I did a number of those. They did the marathon, which that was really fun. Even before Youngblood, they were constantly doing stuff, you know, like literally readings and workshops and main stage productions and sixth floor productions. And, you know, I think Youngblood made it a defined thing, mm-hmm. a, a structured thing, and something that has a, a, a focus on the writer. Mm-hmm. But before that, there was just really a focus on just everybody doing theater. And a lot of the members that were creating theater, you know, they just used other members. And also a lot of their shows, quite a few of them ended up like becoming really popular and going somewhere. So there was a real push to, it was, it was something, you know, it was important. Mm, yeah. I think the first time I saw you on stage was at EST doing a benefit reading or something. Oh, okay. Probably. <laughs> I don't really do too much theater anymore. It's the only place I'll still do theater because oh, really? yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't really feel like doing theater. First of all, it's when you have a child, even though my son is 15, I want to be home with him. And second of all, you know, you can't make a living in the theater and I would like to give my son a college education and it mm. is really expensive to send a kid to college these days. And, you know, even Cooney or city college, still a lot of costs. So I think theater is just, I just think theater is prohibitive. You know, I really do. I think for me, you know, it took 40 years more, right. To create fair wage on stage. And mm. I think that's inappropriate. And I'm not talking about theaters like EST or Rattlestick or Club Thumb or the Ohio or any of these smaller theaters. I'm not talking about those, Mm -hmm. but the public and roundabout Lincoln center theaters like that are working the same contracts. So I think, you know, those theaters should be working at least the off Broadway arm of those theaters should be not the commercial Broadway arms of those theaters, but the off Broadway arms of those theaters should be working a different contract, a contract that's based on their annual revenue, you Mm know, um, their annual growth revenue, not, I remember I I did a workshop at one of those theaters and they asked me to reserve a 40 hour week for $125. So that's below the federally mandated minimum wage. But uh, I was like, oh, wow, this is so tawny to be able to be asked, you know, and I did it. And I, at that time was on a TV show, so I could afford to do that. Mm-hmm. But when I walked in the room, there were a number of actors who I knew and I knew they were struggling. And mm-hmm. one of them had just had a rent party and they should have been paid a fair wage to work a 40 hour week. And, you know, I felt that was pretty much the last thing that I've done in the theater. It hurt me terribly to see that. And it made me angry, very, very angry. And, um, you know, I have a friend who 
lost their children in a divorce because they couldn't prove to the judge that they made a uh, substantial living, a steady living. Mm. And this person has done like literally 14 Broadway shows. I mean, nothing like I've ever done. Leads, leads in 14 Broadway shows. Wow. And I'm not talking about musical theater, which maybe is a little different. I don't understand that, that world. I don't know it, but I know a bit about um, legit straight theater and it's inappropriate. The, the wage, the wages are, it's not a living wage. And you, you, you can't, even if you do 14 Broadway shows over your life, you're not going to do a Broadway show every day of the week, every year. Right. Mm. And so, but if you're doing 14 Broadway shows as a lead, if you've done that, if that's your resume, then you are at the top of your game. You are an amazing professional and that should be honored with a salary, right? A, a, mm-hmm. a good salary, um, mm-hmm. a living wage. And, you know, they say, oh, you're lucky to have a job. Or I ran into the head of equity once when I was doing a play, an off-Broadway play at a very well-endowed off-Broadway theater. And I ran into the this guy and we were doing the tech week. And I'm I don't know if I have this exactly correctly, but I was making $737 a week, which was big money off Broadway at the time. Right. Not that long ago. Right. I think that contract is still extant. And yeah. Yeah. And the tech week contract says that you can work, I think not 40 hours, but they can work you. I think it's 60 or 70 or 80 hours. I mean, like seriously for the same money, they don't, you don't get a bump in salary. So that's definitely below the federally mandated minimum wage. And I went up to this guy, this head of equity on the street. I saw him and I was like, dude, what is this contract? And he said, well, at least you're working. And I said, how dare you tell me at least I am working. I am a working professional. I have spent my life doing this and I don't deserve to, to make what is the federally mandated minimum wage. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a supply and demand issue. It's like the coal mining bosses, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm not talking about commercial theater because commercial producers have a different contract and they don't get away with this, but there are some theaters, you know, that are really getting away with it and it's sad and it's wrong. And so theater just makes me angry and I don't want to do it anymore. I'm just in solidarity with the fact that I think you, you should be paid correctly for your work. That's all, you know? Yeah. I mean, you have an incredible TV film career. So it's okay. It's all right. It's not incredible. You know, I mean, I have friends that have incredible film and TV careers, like incredible. Like you're like, oh my God, dude. But you know, I'm grateful and I, I lollipop along and uh, I'm a working actor. I'm a character actor and I don't have an incredible career, but I have a good career and I, I work all the time. And I think part of why I work all the time is just because I, I really enjoy working and I'm a workaholic and I say yes to everything. Like, I'm like, somebody's like, you know, it's $125 a day to shoot this little indie film. And I'm like, okay, I'll be there. Should I bring the bagels? Do you have money for the bagels? But I tell you what, I'll bring my car. And if it's freezing cold and everybody needs a place to sit inside, I'll turn the heat on in my car and we can all sit in the car while we're waiting to shoot. How's that? Oh my oh, God. Oh, good. Okay, great. 
Okay. All right. Yeah. And I'll bring a few extra things in case people need stuff to wear, you know, like I do that. So, you know, I think that's why I, I work all the time. <laughs> I you know, You're I like don't, the PA. You I'm like the PA. PA. <laughs> I'm like the PA mom. I'm like the mom PA. Okay. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. What would it require, take for you to say no to something if it's, you know, TV or film? Do you ever read things and you're like, oh, why did I say yes to this? No, because like the only things I would say no to are like, I disturbingly violent, violent for the sake of being violent, violent to um, embrace violence, to um, put violence up on some kind of pedestal. I just read a serial killer script that there was an inquiry for me to come do a role in it. And I was just like, oh. I don't want to do this. You know, it's not, I mean, I can understand silence of the lambs, but that was more of a psychological thing. Hmm. This was more like, it was just about literally the violence and the gore. And I just don't want to do that. I don't know. You know, like if I'm going to do horror and like, I've got a film coming out in Tribeca film festival that I have one of the leads in werewolves within. And um, it's a horror comedy. So if I'm going to do horror, I would like to do a horror comedy. You know, I don't, I don't really want to do a bloody gory. Like, first of all, I don't think most of those you can really, I, I don't think the majority of them do well because it's so hard to direct horror. It's, I think it's one of the most difficult genres to pull off as a director and as an editor and as a filmmaker. And it's like, I feel like a lot of first time filmmakers go to horror because they're like, oh, this is going to be great. But it takes a lot of really money because you got to make those shots look really good. You know, you got to make that bloody stuff look really good. You got to make those chases. You got to make those, those, when you blow something up, it has to really look like you're blowing it up. It's also very hard when you're, when you've got stuff where you're concentrating on the technical aspects of those kind of difficult, you know, you're going to blow up half a block or something, or, you know, somebody's going to jump off a roof. When you have to concentrate on that level of technical filmmaking, it's very hard to also bring in the attention to the performances. Mm -hmm. And it's always really the performances at the end of the day that sell the story. So I think horror is actually one of the most difficult genres for a young or new director to do. And yet it seems to me that like so many first time directors are just like, horror, I'm going to pick a horror film. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, I, I got to know that it's going to be, you know, I'd rather do a small relationship drama where I can go, this is just going to be about the acting. And I can guarantee that, you know, hopefully if everybody shows up that that's going to be special. Mm, yeah. Where did you study? Did you study at all? Or did you kind of just splash into the scene? I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm a splasher. Um, and I don't know if I really splashed, but I, you know, I, um, I, I went to Princeton and you were I did smarty. No, wow. not really. Yes. Uh, no, I was just their token artist. And, you know, I, I, I didn't get into Yale and, but Princeton wanted a couple of artists, you know, so they were like, oh. so they could compete a little bit. So I was, you know, cause I did theater as a kid. So they, they were just like, all right, we'll take her. But, you know, I didn't, I, um, it's a very conservative school and it was a brilliant education, but I just, when I got out, I was like, oh, I cannot go to one more institution. That's it. That was it for me. 
And so I just sort of did theater downtown and every fringe little thing I could get. You know, I I remember there was one time I, I did a play at a theater down in the um, Tribeca, but it was before it was Tribeca. You know, it was like before. Yeah. Before it was cool. And it was, uh, and before it was like wealthy and before it was like redone. And we were rehearsing in this basement and, you know, there were holes in the walls and everything. And then all of a sudden the plumbing exploded and it was, and it was like so gross. And I was like, ah, I want to work in a theater that like has heat and in the winter, I don't even care about the air conditioning this summer. I just want to work somewhere that's heat in the winter. That's my goal. And I want to work in a theater where the bathrooms work. Oh, I really want to do that where you don't have to go around to somebody else's bathroom to wash your hands or, you know, just there's no bathroom at all. So, I mean, you know, I spent a lot of years doing that, but I, 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 I loved it. Like that was my jam. Like that would, those were my people. And you know, I kicked my fair share of holes in the walls at those theaters, you know, cause I was angry and young and, um, oh, yeah. I, you know, I was doing my, my revolutionary thing, right. Like, and kids can't be revolutionaries today. You know, they're, they're so, it's so hard for kids today to explore that part of themselves. Are the people you were making work with back then still making work? Are they still in the theater? Most of them are not. Most of them, most of the people that I worked with back then, most of the companies that I really worshipped at, like, you know, worshipped at, most of those companies are, they're no longer, you know, I can, I mean, the list is long of theater companies that don't exist anymore that I um, thought were just the bomb. Yeah. And I, a lot of, most of the people are no longer in the industry. You know, I mean, like in six degrees, there was a lot of kids that went through that, that play, right. Cause there's a lot of kids on stage. There's a lot of kids understudying backstage. There was a lot of turnover in the cast. There was like a lot of kids. And out of that group, I would say, I don't know, probably at the end of the day, there was about 15 to 20 of us that went through that project that we're in our twenties, I would say a small handful, like two or three, four, maybe are still in the business. Was it a hard project to go through? No, I mean, it wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I, it was, it was very telling, I thought, because sort of addressing that, speaking to that, I started out as an understudy and a lot of the kids who started out on stage you know, right away they were swept up by, you know, William Morris and UTA and Gersh and blah, 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 blah. And those are all the kids that aren't in the business anymore. Mm. And they said no to a lot of stuff because they were like, you know, on Broadway and, you know, why would I do that project? And, you know, I don't say that disparagingly. I say that as, you know, buyer beware because, I think, you know, you have one Broadway credit. You got to keep going. You got to get more credits. You know, you got to keep going. I think often people judge projects, you know, the first time they read it, they're like, oh, this isn't for me. It's just not, it's not good enough. And I think that no creator, no showrunner, no filmmaker sets out 
to make something less than no one, no one sets out to make bad art. That's just not something anybody does. Mm. And so if you read a script, you know, like a lot of times during pilot season, people will go, Oh, I just couldn't, you know, that pilot was so bad. It was so poorly written. And I'd be like, Oh, I, I, I was happy. I had fun, you know, auditioning for it because I figure if it's, if it's not quite there on the page, it, you know, it's, first of all, it's not going to get bought, right? Like nobody's going to pick it up. So there's no worry there. But if it's not quite on the page, you might be able to fill that out for them. And so it might be even a more fun audition if you get creative with it. And when they're shooting it, if you were to get it, you know, these are smart people you might be able to go and be like, you guys, you know, like, I don't know. I think this feels like a little, I don't know. It's just not flowing for me. Could I, I have a few ideas. Can I bring my ideas to the table? And if they're trying to make something better and they themselves probably know it's not quite there. Most of the time I have found people are like, yeah, what do you got? What were you thinking? Bring it on. And so then that becomes really fun. So don't judge yourself. Don't judge your own work. Don't judge the work of others. Don't judge what you're auditioning for. Don't judge what you're doing. Just try to bring to it the best that you can bring to it. And if you keep bringing your best and other people bring their best, something good is going to come of it all. And I think there's good cause. There's good reason to have a lot of faith in the people that are in this industry in terms of their ability to create something quite magical. And so not judging is a good way to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I shot a film like two years ago, two or three years ago. And, you know, my, they had called my agents and asked my agents. They just was offered it to me. It was just a few days and it was not really good money. And my agents were like, oh, don't do it. And we read the script and it's so stupid. And I was like, oh, let me read it. I love stupid. <laughs> and, and then I read it and it was like really stupid, but it was really stupid comedy. It was like, it was like the British comedians, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, it was so dumb. I couldn't, I, it, 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 like Carol Burnett would have been like, unbelievable. How did you get this dumb? Like impossible, <laughs> impossible. And so I was like, I have to do it. This is, this is awesome. And my agents were like, no, it's beneath you. And I'm like, no, no, I'm beneath it. Watch how low I can go. I went, I drove up there to Yonkers and, you know, I, I found the location and I walk in and I'm like, what's up? What's up? I brought all these, you know, clothing options. I brought some wardrobe. What's going on? And they were so creative and we kept expanding the scenes and improving and it was so wacky and it was so fun. And like, there was no, there was no humor lower, low enough to go. Like there was nothing low enough for them. And I just thought that was a hoot. And then cut to on that job, I met another person who was part of, a $7 million film. And I was called to play one of the leads in that Mm -hmm. film a few months later. And I never would have gotten that job, just an offer like that, a straight up offer. 
if I hadn't been like, Hey man, I'm not doing anything tomorrow. Why wouldn't I go play? Like, why wouldn't I go play on the stupidest film on planet earth? Okay. You know, maybe nobody will ever see it or maybe it'll be like a cult hit, you know, Mm. but I'm not, I like to play ball. If you like to play ball, you got to go to the ballpark. You just Mm got to go to the ballpark and you just never know who you're going to meet. And I think that that's, that was the lesson I learned with six degrees. And some of those kids who were like, they just couldn't audition for everything. It was just, no, there's just things that they, and I was like, God, I'm, I'm grateful to even be here. And I think that has proven true time and again to me that saying yes and willing to go play ball on any ball field is, is, is really important. Um, and the only reason I don't do that really anymore with theater is because I do feel that fair wage on stage is, was not met. And for me, that's a stopping point just to get back to that for one more second. I was doing a reading, uh, but I do love to do readings. I don't, I don't, that doesn't count. I was doing a reading and there was an actress doing one of the other roles, big actress, like big, big name theater actress, wonderful actress, amazing actress, like amazing. And I was, and we walked out together and we were walking downtown together. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm so excited. I worship this woman. And we, we started to talk about fair wage on stage. And she said, I said, did you go to those meetings and you know, the protests or whatever? And she goes, well, I was going to go to one of the meetings, but then I heard that so-and-so was there who runs such and such. And I got scared that he would blacklist me and I wouldn't be able to work at his theater again. So that made me so angry because I thought, wow, you know, yeah, I think with theater, you really have to be buyer beware if you're a young person or if you're not doing a TV or a film. That yeah. makes me so sad, though, because I mean, it's so true. I think actors are so devalued in the theater. Like we definitely don't get our fair share, fair wage, you know, but, but it's I don't know. Is there any hope that it's going to get better? Because if the more people leave the theater, the less good theater will have, you know, and then there'll be less, re- you know, I don't know. What do you think? You know, I think that's really true. I think. But they say that about writers, too. Right. And directors. I don't know. You know, I mean, theater is such a utopian, soulful, creative experience. The communion of the artist and the audience is such a sacred thing. I think people will always be drawn to it. Like I can't stop going to the theater. I go to the theater all the time when it's not COVID and, um, Ooh, yeah, COVID, but, um, uh, I, um, <laughs> I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah. Heard of it. Oh my gosh. But, um, I'm very grateful to, to be okay after COVID um, and during COVID, I've been very, very grateful. But, but I mean, I I think the theater, in the sense that, you know, you it's it's like moths drawn to a flame. You can't you, creative people can't not do theater. It's just at a certain point, I think you will lose certain people, and you know, maybe it's no big shakes that anybody lost me, but it is sad, and I think a company like a EST or Rattlestick or whatever these small companies are that are just struggling to keep the lights on, got their carpets taped together with gaff tape. You know, I'm not talking about those places. That's a community effort when everyone works there. 
I'm talking about the places that have spend $100,000 to put a pool on stage, that spend many times more of that to install a new lobby, that do a renovation that is astounding. And yet the actors are still making a pittance. Mm. And I don't think the general public, the bridge and tunnel crowd, I don't think they know how little actors share in the profit that is the theater. You know, I remember this guy saying to me, he knew I was doing this play and he was like, wow, your play is doing really well. You must be doing really well. And I was like, no, just because the play is doing really well, the theater gets all that money. My salary is, is still the same. And um, I'm not seeing any bump in, in wages. And I was think I was like making like four thirty two a week or something on that job. And that's and then um, 10% your reps. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and you have to pay your reps, you have to pay taxes. Yeah. And it's like actors in the theater are subsidizing the theater and yet they're not getting any tax benefit for subsidizing the theater. The theater doesn't even do that for you. And now, you know, Donald Trump made it such you know, tax bill that was enacted in his first year, he made it such that, you know, actors can't even deduct unless you're incorporated, you can't even deduct your agent commissions, right? It's just, it's, it's appalling to me, you know? So I, I think the structure of the arts in the United States really needs to be looked at. And also, you know, what that tax bill did, like say a violinist, right? A violinist has to buy new strings for their violin, right? That That's like a business expense, right? They're a violinist in the Philharmonic or on Broadway or wherever, that is a business expense. But that new tax law says that unless that violinist is incorporated, those strings are no longer a tax deduction. And you can't really incorporate unless you're making enough, like, over $100,000 to make it feasible because it's expensive to incorporate and it's expensive. It has, there are expenses yearly with that. And a violinist is making maybe 60, 80 grand a year. So they're not going to be able to afford to incorporate. And that's somebody that could really use that money back, you know, as a tax deduction on their taxes for buying those violin strings. You know, we really need to answer the call you know, and a society, you know, it's not going to be remembered for this or that as much as it will be remembered for its art. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really something. Wow. That's, that's, that's what I have to say about that. But. I guess I'll end on like the two questions that I had were about longevity in the arts, you know, sustaining your career. But yeah. I feel like you've provided a lot about that with, you know, saying yes to everything and how you've cultivated your time until now. My question is, if you could look back to a younger version of yourself, to like the self, you know, as you were starting out, what is the piece of advice that you wish you had known? Hmm. Become a lawyer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, become a corporate lawyer. Um, <laughs> you know, never too, late. <laughs> never too late, right? No, it is. It really is. I could never pass the LSATs. Um, I could never pass the bar. Uh, none of that. And, you know, and I still probably would be like working in the Manhattan DA's office, you know, doing like pro bono work. Let's face it. Like I have a, I'm just like, I have an issue with like being able to do anything practical. But, um, you know, if I was going to say to my younger self, I would say get into TV and film earlier or voiceovers or commercials. Take that stuff seriously. You know, TV and film is so different 
today than it was when I was growing up. It's so much more interesting today. And so you don't have to have that sense that, you know, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, when I was growing up, the Breaking Bads didn't exist. The um, Orange is the New Blacks didn't exist. These were groundbreaking shows. Like you, you, you don't think of that now. You're like, oh, no, no. TV is very cutting edge. Film is very cutting edge. Only um, avant-garde film or art house film was cutting edge at the time. TV was very cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's not to say there weren't some really interesting shows, but generally for me, it was this intellectual political journey. And I think it's smart to understand that you're a living, breathing human being and that you should be making some responsible choices. <laughs> and um, you know, I mean, I'm just lucky that I finally got some TV gigs going because I was like willy-nilly doing everybody's thing, everybody's art thing, you know, and I think that's great, but you do have to, I think it's important. And I'm and I also think it's important, whatever it is that is your survival gig, I think it's really important that your survival gig try to make it within the industry if you can, or try to make it extremely profitable for a very short, that you have to put in as few hours as possible and don't make it something that you love. (laughs) You don't need to love your survival gig. Your survival gig is like a gig to get you somewhere else. And the other thing I would tell myself is that there are some really great places to take classes. Be careful who you take classes with take classes with um, somebody who's really good reputation, find out who has really good reputations, um, not with a bitter professional who has not made it. And then it's just going to attack his class or her class. I've seen that. And I know a lot of people have seen that. And I would also say, write and direct and produce your own work. Uh, I think today that is something people can do that they couldn't do when I was younger. You know, everybody can make something on their iPhone and I think they should. And I think stick with writing, even if you're not going to be a writer or write your artist way pages. I think those are really good. You know, I don't really, I've never really read the book, but from what I understand about this artist ways thing, you know, you come to yourself every day on the blank page. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's really important you know, and I do think the spirit of yes is a good place to live. And the spirit of being caring and loving of others that are creating and hustle, you know, work at it every day, every single day, try to think of something that you can do that pushes the ball forward, write to people, go see stuff, never be afraid to lend a hand. I think all of that is really helpful in building a community and building resources. And, you know, when you're on set, I think be cool. Don't be a jerk, you know, when you're on set, because there's like a million people that anybody could work with. There's like a million talented people And people work really hard, really long hours. So they just want to work with people who are cool, you know, like who who are chill, who are nice, who are kind, who are human. Understand that people are trying as hard as they can and be sympathetic to that and be empathetic to that and be 
be grateful for what you have, you know, like I try to understand to be grateful. I think that that that's really essential and don't doubt yourself. I think that's the thing that I, the problem that I had most in my life was self-doubt, 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 self-hatred and the anxiety that comes from that. And it just does nobody any good. And it takes away your ability to be responsible. I, I, I really, every day have to, every day I have to remind myself not to judge myself mm. and don't go up to a director and, you know, I mean, yeah, if you want to go do, you know, I shouldn't be telling anybody anything, but, you know, I don't think it helps when you go up to a director and you're like, you know, is that okay? Is that okay? I'm, I'm just go take a little walk around set and think about whether it was okay and try to think about what maybe you'd like to do better or change or make more of, but try to be self-sufficient, try to be a self-sufficient creator, try to be an artist who really comes to the table with the plate full. And that if somebody needs something different, they can simply say, Hey, can you, can you do it a little bit to the left over here? Or you know what, that's too comedic. Let's, let's go a little straighter or that's too straight, you know, let's go a little, you know, comedic. I I definitely wish, I wish I had had less doubt. I wish that I had had less anxiety and less self-hatred. And it's something that I have had to painfully work through my entire life. And I think, you know, I had a lot of hard time auditioning because of that. You know, I love, I I love to show finished work. I hate showing unfinished work. So that's why for me, auditions were just like, but this is not finished. How can I show this work? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think go the extra mile, you know, and, and forgive yourself and love yourself and get the critic off your back. That's not your job. And I say that to myself as much as I say that to anybody else. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. That's amazing. I love that. I'm going to listen to that every day. I'm just going to oh play your voice saying, love yourself. Yeah, me too. I, I mean, it's a struggle. Thank you, Kathy. Oh my God. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me just chat. I'm very grateful. I actually do think it's good to listen to things like this from people who've been around the block. And that is something I wish I had done. That was Kathy Curtin. Isn't she the coolest? She's like the cool mom I wish I had. Even though I love my mom very much. She's a very nice lady. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. Subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Upstage Left Podcast. Until next time, have a great day. Bye.